Good communication and pre-planning. What the Boston Marathon bombing taught us. That's this week's topic. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. EMS One Stop is written and presented as part of EMS One's Response to Mass Violence series. And a little bit later on, I'm going to be welcoming my guest for this particular podcast, who is Joe O'Hare, the Superintendent of Field Operations for Boston EMS, and more about him a little bit later. But first, on to my long-form narration of this week's article. Protests, riots, civil disorder and terrorism all tax and task first responder agencies. Whether it's in the planning, preparation or participation stages or the rapid deployment to an unscheduled, unplanned event, we are, in EMS, at the front and centre. In recent memory, we have witnessed every type of event from 9-11 through the Boston Marathon bombing to active shooters of Aurora, Parkland, Las Vegas and many others, sadly too numerous to mention. In some of these events, we were deployed ready and prepared, hoping that all would be okay. In others, we had to run into the storm. One of the key issues in the aftermath of any event is to conduct a detailed after-action review, or AAR, as well as an immediate team debrief and wellness check to identify the issues we wish to single out and, if necessary, work on to ensure the next event runs a little smoother. Identifying lessons from an event is a key activity on the way to ensuring that we learn by absorbing what happened and exercise and drill the scenario to ensure our future actions are well rehearsed and further contribute to life-saving. The major lesson identified from any mass casualty incident caused by extreme or focused violence of bad actors is communication. The stress of the situation, the fog of war, and the lack of interoperable comm systems all add to the initially confusing scene and delay the ability to gather and form a common operating picture that then leads to organisation and order. The AAR on the World Trade Centre attack on 9-11 highlighted communication failures and lack of interoperability as major lessons. To effectively deal with the outcome of violence, our drills, tactics, techniques and procedures must be understood and rehearsed. Planning must consider every possible twist and turn, and protocols must be developed to deal with them. The key to 911 response and life-saving therefore sits in the plan, or, if there is no plan, at least the muscle memory that comes from training and exercise. Lessons identified the Boston Marathon bombing. On April 15th, 2013, Zokar and Tamalin Sarnev set off two explosives near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. The explosions resulted in three fatalities and over 250 injured. The AAR commended the high levels of preparedness and the strong and collaborative response effort from many agencies. The level of preparation and preparedness section noted that safety planning exercises and the robust medical support at the marathon helped minimise casualties and damages. The report went on to note that medical services performed especially well in the response effort 
as they were able to coordinate the appropriate services for victims, families of victims and survivors. The ability to keep the public informed about the closure of facilities and services is also touted as one of the response effort's strengths. Boston EMS Superintendent of Field Operations, Joe O'Hare, served as commander of the dispatch operations in 2013. He told me that in terms of planning for such event, we always looked at the marathon the same we looked at the 4th of July and other large-scale events, a kind of MCI that we've never actually thought would happen. Nevertheless, planning and cooperation played a large part in the response to the attack. Boston EMS's training approach to dealing with large-scale events begins at the New Hire Academy and is carried out through annual refresher training. O'Hare explained that everyone gets trained right from the academy in MCIs and they continue to train every year. Nine months out of every year they have mandatory training and run it 24 hours a day across a three-schedule calendar. The consistent approach to training ensures that every member of staff is comfortable with such large-scale operations. A major issue and finding with many MCIs is that communication often becomes the first casualty. The level of planning and training in Boston ensured that this was not the case. O'Hare observes knowing your counterparts is a major requirement for good disaster response. That only comes through exercise and planning before the day. In addition to maintaining good public safety relations planning, long-standing systems with local hospitals aided reception and treatment on the day of the bombing. We have multiple level 1 adult trauma centres, two adult to paediatric level 1 trauma centres and a burn centre, O'Hare reported. We have a pre-plan that we update pretty regularly for MCI. So we reach out to all the hospitals within the city and then some just outside the city that we will occasionally transport to and we look to them to provide their 24-hour-a-day capability no matter what it is. Because of this level of understanding, the system level was understood and a division and diversion of patients was able to be achieved with relative ease. Communication occurred at all levels as a result. The after-action report, as it relates to EMS operations, supports O'Hare's sentiment on prior preparation, planning and liaison. A key ingredient on any joint public safety response event is liaison and familiarity. Senior commanders should not meet for the first time on the day of an event. From an EMS perspective, this aspect was a success and should be emulated. The AAR noted key points. The question being, can you say the same of your command team, EOC, or all hazards incident management team. Strong relationships and successful unified command. Strong relationships created and maintained by key leaders were paramount to ensuring commanders, agency heads and political leaders came together quickly to form unified command and facilitate collaborative decision-making after the bombings in Boston and during the manhunt in Watertown. Key leaders had the necessary trust and rapport that allowed for unified command to take effective, collaborative decisions, execute mission tasking, maintain situational awareness and coordinate public messaging. All Hazards Medical Supply for the Marathon Day The All Hazards Medical System in place on Marathon Day ensured the capabilities and capacity to quickly triage and transport the injured from the scene of the incident were immediately available. An enhanced all-hazard medical system was put in place with the intent of taking pressure off the area hospital system by minimising the number of patients who needed to be transported to hospitals. On the day of the bombings, medical personnel supporting the Alpha Medical Tent near the finish line immediately transitioned to a mass casualty response. They established triage and treatment groups and designated the tent as a casualty collection point. 
all critically injured patients were transported to area hospitals within 50 minutes. Every patient who was transported to area hospitals survived. Level of readiness. Overall, the response to the Boston Marathon bombings must be considered a great success. Although many patients sustained grave injuries, every patient who was transported to an area hospital survived. A credit to an emergency medical system, the swift triage and transport of the most critical patients, and the care they received at area hospitals. Relationships, prior planning, and the fact that operating in an all-hazards incident team, or EOC, was second nature to the responders, and is an important level of readiness to attain. The high levels of communication aided command and control, and without that, any event or operation is guaranteed a poor outcome. This is the one lesson we must learn and take away. That was my narration and opinion, and as always, I would love to hear what you think in the comments section on the main article at ems1.com. Now on to my guest, and this week I welcomed Boston EMS Superintendent of Field Operations, Joe O'Hare. I should start by letting everybody know how we first met, because the subject of today is how you dealt with the, the Boston bomb. But fast forward a few years after that, and in the city of Richmond, where I was working at the time, we uh, we're very lucky to be to be awarded, if that's such a word, is awarded the UCI, the United Cyclists International World Championships. And we were facing a world-class event coming to our city and we wanted to work out what happened when or if something went wrong. And of course, what we did is we turned to you, Joe, and you very kindly came down to Richmond and gave us your accounting of uh, the bomb and what happened. And actually, I have to tell you, that helped us in no end prepare for what was a two-week World Championship sports event. So, belatedly, thank you for coming to do that. And that's where we first oh, you're met. You're welcome. No, you're great. it was a great group of people, and I, and I enjoyed my time there. And it's always good to see somebody, uh, some other systems and how they do, how they do things. Yeah, and we really want to emulate the, the success. I know it's an odd word to use with, with, a, with a bomb and carnage, but the success at least of the plan. So let me take you back to before when the incident occurred. And one of the reasons that we asked you to come and talk to us in Richmond, getting ready for our big event, was because of the all hazards approach that you guys had taken towards uh, preparing for and dealing with major events and incidents. Uh, and of course, uh, Boston and the British, we have we have a, a, a relationship with tea. I know that. We will save that for another day. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> but take me back to the sort of preparation phases and describe the kind of command setup that you have there when you're thinking about creating uh, support to a major incident or a major event, should I say? Sure. So every year, like most big cities, um, we we have a, a number of events. The marathon is our... Uh, one of our top events, uh, lots of crowds in the city. It's a holiday here, so there's no school. It's the beginning of a school vacation week. Uh, we also have the 4th of July every um, every summer. There's a big, uh, it's actually a, almost a week-long celebration um, that uh, also takes a huge amount of our resources. And things like first night and, and these other large events, we... For years, we've been we've been managing those events as, as if you will, a, a planned MCI. So we write a we write a plan for it right from the start to the finish each day. What the schedule looks like, how many people we'll have, uh, how many medical tents we may set up, how many bicycles, ambulances, gator units, um, 
all of that is written into a plan. And we do that pretty regularly for all of these big events, certainly with the expectation that we will see our usual group of patients who are, you know, maybe sitting out in the sun too long or maybe had a little too much to drink or whatever that might be, never really expecting that this would come home to us, um, but always in the back of our minds, knowing that, that certainly it was a possibility. Right. And, and also, you're not just operating in an EMS silo when you come to the plan, though. This is truly an all-hazards operation, right? That's correct. So, you know, we, we are very fortunate here. Um, probably 25 years ago, uh, one of our deputy superintendents, Steve Lawler, really started to work this collaboration uh, with other agencies. And certainly with the police and fire departments here in, in Boston, we, we've had a long close relationship uh, working with them, uh, but it extends out. It extends out to the National Guard, to the Secret Service, to the FBI, uh, to the Massachusetts State Police, to, to many agencies, both state agencies and federal agencies. And we do drills and we do planning. And sometimes those are real drills, hands-on uh, train accidents that we deal with the transit authority, uh, those kind of things. And it gives us an opportunity, certainly, as the commanders, and we try and involve our supervisory staff and our folks as well, to really meet these people ahead of time, to, to develop a relationship. So when I walk into uh, you know, police headquarters or I walk into the transit headquarters, I know these folks. I've already met them. We may have had lunch together. We've, we've had discussions about maybe it's our kids, maybe it's, it's work-related. So we have these relationships which on a day such as is the marathon bombing, we know these people. Uh, we, we have a relationship already. We, we're not handing out business cards and explaining what our role is or what our function is, because I think it's really important that you have those relationships and also that, that other agencies are aware of your capabilities and, and what we can share and, and what we can do to, to serve another agency to help them do their job better. Actually, you hit all those key points that I was really hoping you were going to say. I knew you were going to say them because, you know, if you're meeting the opposite commander on the day of the event after the, the explosion has happened, it's far too late and you, you've missed the point completely. Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's something that, you know, we do this with community groups. We do it with large real estate developers of, of various shopping areas within the city where there's a, a real estate company that um, that has a management company that manages multiple high-rise buildings with shopping plazas and residents. And, and we deal with these folks all the time. So, so we're well aware of their procedures. They're aware of our procedures, what we may need when we enter, you, you know, you enter a high-rise building. What, what kind of security is available? What kind of elevator transport is available? You know, it seems like little things, um, but it's but it really serves to to allow us to be more efficient and to get to patients quicker and, and to provide that that kind of sense of everybody has a, a, an idea of what everybody else is doing. So let's let's get on to the the, the day of the event itself. And one of the larger criticisms that comes from any uh, terrorist related explosion event, whether it's 9/11, whether it's you know from the UK, where you know. Uh, we had our 7-7 bombings, which I also wrote about in this series as well, from my own experiences of that. Sure. But communications is always the first casualty. So when it happened, how did the comms work? How did you maintain command, control, coordination, and communication? 
so every agency obviously operates on their own on their own set of, of channels that they designate. Um, we always assign a, a tactical channel uh, for our folks because you know we we can't forget that we have a city to run as well. So that the average person who lives in a neighborhood who doesn't isn't interested in the marathon, you know, not interested in the Fourth of July celebrations. They're home. They're you know they have their usual ills or or injuries. And so we we really run this as a second a second operation to our day to day function here in, at Boston EMS, and we have a liaison which happened to be me on that day in a law enforcement command center. So that it's a large room at police headquarters where all of the police agencies are represented, including university police, the state police, Boston police, um, the National Guard has has somebody. There was a member of the of the fire department command staff. So we're all sitting in a room with lots of cameras and lots of TVs so we can keep an eye on this. And, you know, radio communication certainly can be difficult and we, you can't put a thousand people on a single radio channel and expect them to communicate effectively. So we found that this, this really person to person, I can turn to the police commander and say, I need, I need officers to protect my guys at this location. And he makes that happen right then and there. Um, we we do uh, in uh, looking back at the event, um, our channel was pretty well controlled. Our folks exercised very good radio discipline. Uh, we got an immediate report uh, from our folks right down on the scene, and slowly but surely, we had a, a very capable dispatcher who actually now is a Massachusetts State Trooper uh, who who managed the event and kept it all very concise. And it was speak when you needed to speak. And the other side of the communication from our perspective is, is we have a very robust communication system set up with the hospital. So we have a, a disaster network where we can talk to anyone or any number of the hospitals within the city with basically a click of a mouse um, to notify them immediately uh, in, in in the Boston Marathon case, within four minutes, every hospital in the city knew there was a bombing and that they should prepare to receive trauma patients. Let, let's take a second, uh, Joe, and I know you'll agree with what I'm about to say, but sometimes the, the, the dispatchers and the communicators are the unsung heroes of these events. And, uh, you know, whoever is running your primary has got to be a cool cat, have a clear head, and actually do a really focused job on the day to achieve what you just described. Exactly. And, and that was, you know, we, all of our folks in our dispatch center, which is co-located with the police, they're, they're in separate rooms, but there's only a, a glass door between them. Right. Uh, all of, all of our folks are city trained EMTs. Most of them have worked in the field at one time or another and either chose to go up there or had an injury that prevented them from working in the field. Uh, but they have this expertise when they're giving CPR instructions over the phone, they know what it's like because they've done it. Right. And, and so that kind of expertise, you know, goes a long way when you're dealing on the radio. You know what it's like to be in an ambulance and there's five people all trying to talk at the same time. And now they're the person who's in control. And we run a very controlled radio network here. Uh, we don't allow units to cross talk amongst themselves. Everything has to go through the dispatch center. And, and, and you're right. They are often the unsung heroes. They're the people that take the original calls. They're the people who give pre-arrival instructions that, that have been proven to save lives. And they're the people who manage the, the assets to get them where they need to be. 
heroes in headsets, all of them. Um, let's go go back to the individual medic on the ground. And whilst you've described how organisationally you prepared, uh, we talked about communications. But what's been your approach to training the either the new entry guy or the or the or the continuing education, shall we say, of of the folks in response to major incident things like start triage etc is, is that something that's high on your list of priorities yes we do so we we have a, a fairly extensive academy when we when we do new hires we bring them in and they spend uh they spend basically three months in in the in the academy in, in a didactic sense uh, that also includes some practical applications and uh, before they move to a field the field internship portion so Right from the beginning, uh, you know, like any and like any ambulance service, we're teaching protocols and, and and SOPs and medical, you know, care and how we do things here. Uh, but part of that also includes mass casualty training. How to use triage tags, stat triage, uh, and and we have a very good group of physicians here that 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 are full time with us. Uh, and also work clinically in, in the emergency department um, of, of our main hospital. So we start this right from the beginning and we drill that. We will actually run scenarios. We have to put signs on the windows of headquarters. We'll run six stories. We'll put mannequins with various injuries or whatever, scatter them about the building and set them loose you know, into that. And then as, as the years pass, because like any skill, if you, if you, use it regularly then then you become much more familiar with it and you and you have more muscle memory if you will um, to accomplish the goal so we do training uh nine months out of the year and 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 we do that where on that training day everybody in the department is scheduled to work on one of three schedules and so on that training day that month all of the folks on schedule one report to training so that that's their that's their ship that day, and we and we do that pretty consistently, and and obviously we we look to continue our our normal continuing yeah to to maintain certification, but we also bring these other aspects as as MCIs and now certainly with COVID and PPE and those things. So so it's a constant process, um, and and things in medicine as you know change on a regular basis. It may be yeah. a it may be a new a new treatment modality. So we work with that and, and we fold all of that into our training. And, and often there's a practical portion of that, um, which can be, you know, we may we may do a drill at Logan Airport. Uh, you know, working in an, in an airport environment is incredibly different than working on a city street. Same as working in a transit tunnel. Um, and all of those things are really important for our folks. Yeah, and, and it's good that you've invested that time, particularly in the kind of, you know, the, the, the training session of that. And for those that are listening, please go into ems1.com, into the response to mass violence section, and go and read the article by Brian Hupp on how he created the tabletop training system to do a lot of the stuff that, that you've just talked about. And that, that's a great article as well, and I commend people that read that. So... The, the Sarniovs have planted their bombs, they are going off. Um, and so things that normally happen in such incidents as that, of course, we now know that, you know, people will try and get patients to hospitals in any which way they can, whether it's police cars, pickup trucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think you had a fairly robust 
medical tent system and you managed to sort of capture, shall we call that, most of the major casualties into your system, first of all, and then get them off to hospital. So how did that work and, and, you know, and, and how kind of efficient was it, shall we say? So that's true. So we do, you know, the Boston Marathon, like most marathons, is 26 miles. Uh, and really only two and a half of that lies in the city of Boston. Um, so we look at, at, at the location of the race. There are many, many, many volunteers involved. We set up medical stations and manned medical stations along the route within the city. Most of them are relatively small. Uh, staffed by a medic or a couple of EMTs and a medic, a proceed out team with a stretcher and, and portable equipment. And then towards the end, it's it certainly at the finish line is the main medical tent, the Alpha station, which is staffed by by hundreds literally of people. And, and, the, and that goes from trauma physicians and emergency physicians to podiatrists, to physical therapists, to you know massage therapists, all of those folks are involved but we oversee all of the medical care um, with our medical control docs who are always on scene as well. So having, and then we stage ambulances all along the route. The marathon is, is the one event that we can't cross. So from one side of the, the roadway to the other, we can't drive an ambulance across that because there are fences, there are barriers, there's thousands of people. So, so we stage them alternately on different sides of the, of the roadway as it, as it comes into the city and, and point them out. And everybody knows where those are. The barriers have breaks in them. The police are aware where those are. So anybody who, who is on the course, we can extricate them very quickly. Um, our bicycle teams are inside the, uh, inside the barriers. We have gators. Um, in, inside so we can move a patient. Our goal is to move patients to ambulances and not to move the ambulances to the patients because it's much more difficult. And that was certainly something we picked up from you when you came down to talk to us about our world, world uh, sporting events, is that sure. we created a system within a system. Right, and that's a, exactly. An island within within the city. And so that was that was pretty good. So once it's all over, what about looking after your people then? So what was the kind of first thing, once you'd finished, there was probably some sort of hot wash up, I suspect, but what was the first things you guys did as a leader to the folk that have been out there on the ground, you know, obviously looking after patient care? Sure. So, you know, we, we were very proud of our people and the way they acted, even though the very first thing that everybody who works here did was violate the, the protocol of, is the scene safe? Um, you know, we ordered everybody to stand down until we had a little information and none of them listened to that. Um, fortunately, nobody got such is the case, uh, but, but it's, it saved a lot of people's lives. I mean, for instance, you know, uh, all of the, you know, the first patient left within nine of the first explosion was on the way to the hospital and within 27 minutes, both sites on Oylston street, which is the main thoroughfare yeah. both sites were clear. And then the tent an hour and 17 minutes after that, uh, after the, the first bomb went off, that tent was clear of victims. Um, so we, you know, it very quickly became obviously a crime scene. The beds were there, very, they were already there and we started, they started to lock things down. And so we looked at our folks and, and of course, like most EMS folks, they, they don't think about themselves. They think about their patients. They think about the event, they think about doing things that doesn't have anything to do with their well-being. 
So we very quickly started to, to bring in, um, we have a very good peer support team here. Um, it was started years ago as a, as a cooperation between the union and management to have uniform members who've been trained in, in critical incident stress management and you know various other trainings where they're here, they're uniform, they know what it's like, they've done this job. Um, so we very quickly brought those folks into the mix. And as crews came out, um, we, we started in planning almost immediately um, the hot washes, if you will, not certainly not that day, because I think by the time we were done, uh, you know, our, our folks, again, like most EMS folks, were those who were home packed up their stuff and came into work, even though yeah. they didn't know where they would go or, or what truck they would be in. Um, so, you know, the, it was what we did find was there were a couple of things. Many people really didn't want anything big. What they really wanted was they wanted something simple. Um, one of our paramedics who I who I was I used to work with regularly said to me after, and, and she took actually her and her partner took two very critically injured folks, um, and and she said afterwards she said you know. What I really wanted at the end of the day was I wanted someone to bring me a cup of coffee. And it was just that simple. Despite all of the horrific events that had just happened, now she's kind of locked in this space because it's all locked down and we still, we're still seeing patients in the neighborhood. And she said, you know, I really wish someone had brought me a cup of coffee. And, and we took that to heart. Uh, the same as obviously many family members of our folks were calling and they're calling the dispatch center, which obviously has their hands full right from the yes. So we created, after that after that event, we created a family line. It's manned by a uniformed EMT who is familiar with the folks that work here. And we give that to our, to our folks. Here's the number. Give this number to your family, your loved ones, or whatever. Should, should the need arise for them to call and check on you? So it, it's really... There are big things that, that people do and that we do that, that are very valuable. But what we found was often it was the little things. And in our after actions, when we, we sat down and we had multiple meetings across all, four, uh, all three ships where it was no rank, no holds barred, we all sat in a room and you said what you wanted to say. And it didn't matter that the chief was sitting there. It didn't matter that I was sitting there. It didn't matter. Um, people... People express themselves, and, and again, like most EMS people, they're not shy um, to tell them, you know, to tell folks how they feel. So we found that very valuable, and I think most of our folks, you know, really, really did well. They they all came back to work the next day, every one of them, um, which which I think is a testament, you know, to their fortitude and their and and their training. And, and the other thing that we were very proud of is, is that other than the three unfortunate fatalities that occurred at the moment, um, every patient that we transported that day survived, every single one of them, despite uh, very grievous injuries uh, by many, you know, many of these folks with multiple limb amputations and blast injuries. Uh, so we're very proud of, very proud of that, though, though it's hard to be proud of something that was so tragic. Um, I think the end result was was very good in, in that our people really yeah. think that they did the right thing. Yeah, it's difficult to find the words, actually, Joe, to describe this, because it was a good outcome 
for the medical mission because of the prior preparation and planning, clearly there was a tragedy in the middle of it. But also what you just said to me as well is that learning took place. And I'm a great believer that we don't always learn lessons because we, we, we identify them, but we never really learn them. But it sounds like you had some, some good takeaways because, of course, you, the marathons continue, the, the public holidays continue, and obviously you've gone, gone on from there. Um, and it's a, a great example of how something should be pre prepared, should be run, and then should be followed up on. And, so, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you in and why I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, your experiences. Right. And I think that I think that's the important part. You can sit down and you can dissect any given incident and, you know, assign, uh, you know, assign a certain incident or a certain part of that event to any given person. But, you know, in the end, it's we don't rewrite the plan every year. We we keep the stuff that works. We add to it uh, to to make the things that we've identified, like the family line. We, we use that to make that better. And and we found that there were, you know, there were smaller things that didn't work necessarily so well. So we 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 take them out of the plan. And and so though we don't rewrite the plan every year, uh, we we tweak it every year and we've been doing it, uh, we've been doing it for a long time. And and the plan does change. Uh, you know, this year has been much different with COVID. Obviously, we haven't had any of these large events. Um, so it's it's different, but again, we we incorporate some of the lessons learned in, in these big events to stuff like that's going on today. So we, we take those, you know, when someone, when a, a seasoned paramedic or EMT says, you know, this is, this is really important to me. And this is one thing that I wish the department had done. We, we take that seriously. And, and even if it's only one person, um, we certainly consider adding that into the mix. And on that note, uh, Joe, we're out of time. So, Joe O'Hare, Superintendent of EMS Field Operations for Boston EMS. Thank you, mate. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And uh, what happened to you and you guys and obviously the people of Boston was tragic, but we should all pay attention to what you've had to say because perhaps it just makes that battle day just a little bit easier for all the preparation and the work that goes in. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Rob, I, I appreciate the invite and I appreciate the opportunity to tell the story that uh, that our, you know, the hard work that our folks do every day and, and certainly for an event like this. So, so thank you very much for having me. Cheers. So a big thanks to my guest, Joe O'Hare. That's about it for now. I can be followed on Twitter at UKRobL or over on LinkedIn. Also, if you're on the SoundCloud, just hang on for one second because Chris and Kelly are coming along with another great episode of Inside EMS. I've been Rob Lawrence. Until next time, bye for now.